Hello, with the time coming up to 1641, it's time for another edition of Roy's Rocket Radio. This is episode 39, recorded on Sunday, the 4th of May 2014. And hello again and welcome to the show. So this week we've got quite a lot to cram in. We've got three Doctor Who adventures, no less, and we've also got three movies, or rather two and a half movies, and I'll explain about that later. As for news, uh, I don't really have anything on a personal personal matters to talk about this week. I just really enjoyed watching Doctor Who and a whole bunch of movies, so we'll get right on with that. So, first of all, we've got... And we're continuing with the first Doctor, of course, William Hartnell, but we're now into Series 2, the first adventure entitled Planet of Giants. That was a three-parter originally broadcast on the 31st of October 1964 to the 14th of November 1964. The writer is Lewis Marks, the director Mervyn Pinfield for episodes 1 and 2, and Douglas Camfield for episodes 3. The producer, as usual, is Verity Lambert, and the cast is William Hartnell as Dr. Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and William Russell as Ian Chesterton. So let's get right into the synopsis. And as far as I can see, this is the Incredible Shrinking Man episode, when a fault in the TARDIS, big surprise there, shrinks them all when they land in, well, what looks like an English country garden. Something's terribly wrong, of course, because if you needed me to tell you that... However, because all the insects and worms in the garden are dead and the flies are dropping like, well, they're dropping like flies. So it turns out that the garden is the testbed for a novel but dangerous new insecticide. The giants of the title are actually just normal-sized people. A group of normal-sized people one of whom is a particularly nasty company owner who will stop at literally nothing to ensure that the chemical that he's, his company has experimented with and produced, a steadily new poison, reaches the market. And it is up the, the team to end his dastardly plans. And I don't think I mentioned there, but the, the chemical as well as killing... Well, it kills all insects, not any small animal life form, in fact, which would include honeybees and would lead to another yet another global apocalypse that the Doctor has to avert. So my view of the adventure is it's another very topical adventure, so bravo, Beeb. The best thing about this, though, was seeing the team shrunk and seeing everyday objects like matchboxes, insects, etc., uh, seeming so ginormous. It did look like the set and prop designers had fun, 
although, well, either they had fun or it caused them a major headache with <laughs> with their Doctor Who budget. So, all in all, fairly enjoyable. Quite short. Only a three-parter. And something different for a change. Science fiction, but shrinking the crew down to the size of smaller than flies. So, really enjoyed that one. Next up, I watched uh, the second adventure of Series 2, which which was entitled The Dalek Invasion of Earth, and that was a six-parter. Originally broadcast on the 21st of November 64 to the 26th of December 64. The writer this time was Terry Nation, and as is traditional in this podcast, I'm now going to annoy you and say all hail Terry Nation. Mainly because he also created Blake Seven. (laughs) The director was Richard Martin, the producer Verity Lambert, cast William Hartnell as the Doctor. In fact, exactly the same main cast as The Last Adventure. So let's start with the synopsis. So the team arrive in a depopulated and bombed out near future uh, London. And when I say near future, uh, now that I'm watching it from the a new millennium, what they thought was a new f- near future actually looks like a bit in the past. But we can always explain that away and just call it a parallel universe. The the most telling thing, apart from the 50s, 60s style haircuts and clothes, was there was a fire engine in one scene. And I think it was a real fire engine that they borrowed, or just to film, uh, from the borough of Ealing. Because if you look on the side of the fire engine, it it says... (laughs) I think it says borough. I'm not sure if it says borough, but it says instead of Ealing, it says f- falling. Like they just uh, painted out the bottom part of the first E to make it slightly different. I don't know why they did that. Maybe some weird uh, council red tape that couldn't feature a real fire engine, but that, that made me laugh. Borough of falling. But yeah, so it's a a near-future London. Uh, One thing that tells you that things aren't quite right is that when they come out the TARDIS, there's a prominently displayed and very disturbing sign that warns people not to dump bodies in the Thames. And it takes a while for the team to, to notice that sign. And when they do, they obviously know that things aren't quite right. And they're not exactly back in their correct time stream. So inevitably, the, and as is usual for many of the adventures, the team is separated, this time by a troop of Daleks and Robo-Men, and they learn that the Earth has been decimated by the Daleks through a combination of germ warfare, mass invasion, extermination and slavery. However, the main purpose of the Daleks is to replace the Earth's core with engines and then use the planet like some kind of huge Death Star. 
But like all good James Bond films, the adventure ends with a bang when the team sabotage its the team sabotaged the Daleks' core-destroying bomb, which then backfires, causing a huge volcano, which in turn destroys the Daleks. Now, during all these events, Susan becomes romantically involved with a young and good-looking resistance fighter called David. And this is significant because... This this part of the story will end in a bit of a shocker, and I've abruptly come to that point there, but I wanted to slowly build into that, but my mo- notes aren't going to let me do that. So, now that uh, the Earth's been saved and is back in the hands of the humans who have to rebuild, the, the team are now planning to leave, and... but as... The, I, th- I think Barbara and Ian are actually in the TARDIS and the Doctor has a friendly word with Susan and then makes his way back to the TARDIS. But as he does so, he pauses because he can hear Susan and David having a conversation about how they're going to miss each other and how they're in love. And this is a bit that really knocked me out. It, in an act of both outstanding selflessness and and also simultaneous ruthlessness, the Doctor decides to leave Susan behind to start a new life with David. And he comes to that decision really fast, and once he's decided that's it, nothing's going to turn him back. Amazing that he could leave his granddaughter like that, but also quite generous too. He no longer feels that she should spend her her life helping him out and the scene just knocked me for six and I don't even like cricket and that's uh yeah that's not that funny Uh, when I wrote it down it looked funny but now given the circumstances and the context of what I'm saying it's completely inappropriate so yes Susan has now left the series so my view of the whole thing was I felt that there were very definite echoes of Terry Nation's later sci-fi series Survivors in the stark post-apocalyptic landscape. The spookily deserted streets also reminded me of much later movies like 28 Days Later. All in all, it's a very dramatic, action-packed adventure. And there was just so much going on that it seemed like they had jammed a much bigger story into six episodes. And I wonder how much Terry Nation had to edit his script. I mean, just going into a few of the themes explored, there are Daleks, Robo-Men, there's a bit with an urban myth, sewer reptiles, there's a monster pet of the Daleks, or rather the Black Dalek, who lurks in the sewers, killing humans. And as I just mentioned, there's this mysterious Black Dalek leader. There are themes of Nazi-like dictatorship, resistance fighters, and of course the love interest for Susan. The one annoying thing I did notice, though, were that there were no black, brown or yellow people, and 
I know I, I bang on about this, I hate banging on about it, or feel that I have to bang on about this stuff. But it does kind of drive home one of the few criticisms that I can't level at Russell T. Davies' new Doctor Who that started back in 2005, in that the Davies' Doctor Who is pretty much universally inclusive of just about everything you can think of. Oh dear, I've, I've put a pun in my notes, and I, I've, I was supposed to end that bit where I say inclusive by saying, and it was about time too. Uh, and I've just done that, so sorry about that. That was, that was really awful. But on that subject, there is one bit of inclusion that I haven't seen before. Uh, one of the characters is a guy in a wheelchair. He's um, one of the leaders of the resistance called Dortmund, and he's kind of heroic, kind of cool, kind of science-y, and he is disabled. So that was, that was a good thing. So all in all, um, a, a really packed and enjoyable adventure with a shock ending. So now we go to the last Doctor Who adventure that I watched over the last week. And so, Series 2, Adventure 3, entitled The Rescue. This is a two-parter, and it was the first adventure of 1965, broadcast on the 2nd of January to the 9th of January in 1965. The writer was David Whittaker, the director Christopher Barry, the producer Verity Lambert, of course, and the cast William Hartnell as Jacqueline Hill, as the Doctor and Barbara Wright, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, and introducing Maureen O'Brien as Vicky, the new companion, and I'll talk about her in a bit. So, Let's get on with the synopsis. The Doctor seems a little tired after his last adventure, but soon perks up despite the loss of Susan, and explores the new world they have landed on. But, again, they inevitably run into some trouble in the shape of a sinister and fairly terrifying alien, an alien with a full cliched works, bug eyes, teeth, claws, awful vo- voice, and malevolence aplenty. Ian and the Doctor are then separated from Barbara. Meanwhile, it transpires that the human colonists of the planet have been reduced to only two humans, a single man called Bennett, and a younger teenage girl called Vicky. All the others have been killed, and these two last survivors are now menaced by that creature I mentioned earlier, whose name, it turns out, is Coquillian. As usual, lots of peril confronts the team, including monstrous crawly things, 
one of which Barbara shoots, much to the distress of Vicky. And in the final confrontation, the Doctor discovers that Bennett is, in fact, a mass murderer who has killed a crew member of the last ship he was on to ensure his own survival. And then, when the ship crashed, killed all the remaining humans, as well as all the native inhabitants of the planet, i.e. the crawly creatures, save for Vicky, before disguising himself as the fearsome Coquillian to maintain the cover-up should anyone else arrive to accuse him. During this confrontation with a doctor, Bennett imagines the ghosts of the crew he murdered driving him over a ledge and perishes. That, that kind of seems like a bit of a cop-out for the story, actually. When, when you think about... This guy's gone through all... He's killed potentially hundreds, well, thousands of sentient beings. And then he suddenly has a twinge of guilt, which drives him to kill himself at the end. Yeah, that doesn't sound quite right, does it? But anyway... So now the planet's just left with the natives who aren't quite wiped out, those crawly things, and only Vicky, the last remaining human survivor, who is now totally alone. So the Doctor offers Vicky an opportunity to join him as a companion instead of waiting for a rescue from the Earth ship, which is en route, and she gratefully accepts. Now, my view of this tiny two-parter was that it was—it was obviously a way of bringing in the new companion. Nevertheless, it is a quite effective little sci-fi thriller, which probably could have done with being a bit longer and not suffering from that abrupt suicide of Bennett, which seems a bit unrealistic for such a horrible man that you know he was prepared to survive at all costs, and then well, so. All in all, not bad. You know what? In Bennett, I'm strongly reminded of the character of Lieutenant Peyton, played by Dennis Quaid in Pandorum 2009, if you remember that sci-fi movie, which also portrayed someone who is outwardly normal, but who is a monster under the skin. So, that's where we leave Doctor Who this week, with a new companion, Vicky, who is a teenage girl, much, in, in fact, very reminiscent of the Doctor's granddaughter, Susan, who she replaces. So, we'll continue on with the Doctor Who adventures next week. And now I'm going to talk about some movies that I watched uh, over the last week. So we'll start with Blue Ruin 2013. In this movie, an apparently homeless beach bum is told that the man who killed his family has been rela- released from prison. And he embarks on a path of bloody vengeance. An excellent 
if concise revenge flick and refreshingly free of preachy moralising. Apart from the most obvious and necessary seeds of wrath theme necessary in any revenge thriller, or in any conventional revenge thriller, I suppose. Nice photography, and it had just the right amount, uh, well, the right balance of realism and gritty action. I thought the dialogue was lovely, tight and economic. Oh, and the last thing is, this was a Kickstarter-funded movie, which just goes to prove that some movies funded this way can work, Unlike, sadly, Veronica Mars, which was also released this year, which we talked about last week. So if you want to hear about another Kickstarter movie, go to last week's episode, which was episode 38. So, uh, all in all, congratulations to the young writer-director Jeremy Saulnier. And that was Blue Ruin 2013. Next we have The Reflecting Skin 1990. And in this movie, a young boy living in a run-down hick agricultural community interacts with mysterious and possibly vampiric outsider played by British actress Lindsay Duncan. It seemed strongly reminiscent of many Stephen King stories, i.e. set in the Midwest, in kind of down-at-the-hill agricultural communities. And apparently it's a fairly well-received film, very well-acclaimed, near-gothic story, but that's what everyone else thinks. However, for me, I tried... I, I, I did give it a good try, but I gave up trying to watch this about 25 minutes in. It's not that I hated it. It's just that I couldn't engage with the film or the characters or the landscape or the pace of the movie. Nothing really appealed to me. I couldn't honestly care for any of the miserable characters to the extent that their fates, character arcs, etc. meant nothing to me. Um, This is all sounding a bit negative. Let's see. What can I say that's positive about the film? So, what, what little I did see seemed competently filmed. And I do honestly think that the filmmakers were trying to do something new and interesting, and I kind of got that. And I, but it just didn't appeal to me. Uh, I, I struggled to stay awake, and I'm not really left with any lasting impression, despite seeing this only a couple of days ago. I'll end this with a little aside by saying that I feel unaccountably guilty about this review because I really rate the writer slash director Philip Ridley who has also been responsible for films like The Passion of Darkly Noon 1995 and The Excellent Craze in 1990 
which was also the same year, and he, uh, sorry, he didn't direct that one, he just wrote that one, but yeah, those were two fairly good films. Uh, but this one, for me, just didn't work, and I'm sorry to say that, and it proves, it really proves I'm not a real film critic, otherwise I think I would have at least tried to sit through the whole thing anyway. Oh, complete mistake. I dropped a piece of paper out of my show notes in yet another demonstration of fantastic professionalism and didn't notice that the most important movie that I watched last week was The Amazing Spider-Man 2, 2014. I don't know how I managed to miss that. That was definitely the most memorable thing I've done this week. I finally got to see that last Tuesday and I'd been so looking forward to it. And it was really enjoyable. I must say, as far as I'm concerned, Andrew Garfield can do no wrong with the role. This time, Spidey is up against Electro, albeit in a very different guise than that of the fairly ineffectual nerd Krim in the original Lee Ditko Kirby comic strip from the 1960s, the early 1960s. And I know this because I read... The where the yeah I read the original uh, stories in the pocket book reprints of those first few comics when I was around seven to ten years old. Anyway, Electro is played effectively by Jamie Fox. Also in the mix is of course Gwen Stacy, who Peter is now trying to protect by being absent for her life, as per her late father's request, and it's not quite working out the way he wishes it would. Also rearing his head for the first time is Peter's old friend Harry Osborne, the sickly new head of Oscorp, played excellently by Dane DeHaan, who you may remember played a power-crazed character called Andrew in the superpower sci-fi movie Chronicle 2012, a character strongly reminiscent of that of Tetsuo from the film Akira in 1998. So that was a bit of a mouthful, but the thing is, I was completely glued to the screen. A, a really, a really good sequel. I suppose you could criticise it for not quite capturing the fantasticness of the first episode, but a good sequel nonetheless. The other thing I like about this new uh, Spider-Man franchise, the Amazing Spider-Man that is, is that they're digging into Peter's past and filling in the gaps in Peter's life that I never really followed in the later comics which fleshed the story out. So, as I've said before, this new series of movies really is doing well for die-hard fans like myself and doing well, hopefully, for newer and younger fans joining the fold. I have asked people that considerably younger than me what they think of it and they all like it so that's good news so overall excellent stuff and I'm looking forward now to The Amazing Spider-Man 3 and that definitely is all the movies I need to talk about this week
I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll be back again next Sunday with another... Uh, well, continuing on with the Doctor Who marathon. If you've got any comments about the show, or you want to read a bit more about uh, topics I cover, you can look at the blog, uh, you can rate the show at iTunes, you can email me, tweet me, whatever. All you need to do is go to roymatur.com, so that's R-O-Y-M-A-T-H-U-R.com, click on any of the appropriate links and get in touch. I am looking for guests, I'm always on the lookout for guests, so if that interests you, let me know. Other than that, I suppose I'll see you next week. Oh, I, one thing I can lastly mention though, is I'm still doing the hospital radio. I I sat in this time and was given a bit more responsibility this week in that I was taking musical requests from the patients. Uh, but the one thing I forgot to do <laughs> this week is, I, right, I took their names, their first names, I took the requests of the things that they wanted to listen to, but I completely forgot what ward they were in. So it was a... <laughs> It was, it was, I was going to say a complete fiasco, but it wasn't, because we had their names and their song, the songs that they wanted, so as we were introducing them, we could at least say who wanted what, we just couldn't say what ward they were currently staying in. But hopefully that'll improve as time goes by. I was sitting a lot nearer to the, the DJ decks this time. And, oh man, it does look like ground control, but hopefully I'll be able to master that sooner or later. Although I'm pretty sure I managed to tweak or push the wrong buttons, but I'll get the hang of it. So that, that was some of the news that probably I should have mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, but it's, you know, it's nice to do it at the end. It gives me something to talk about, and it means that I can get through the main business of the podcast at the beginning, so if you're not really interested in what I'm doing myself, you can turn off towards the end. So, that was Roy's Rocket Radio, episode 39, Recorded on Sunday, the 4th of May 2014, and the time at the end of the show is 17.09. Thanks for listening. Please download again next week, get in touch, whatever. And it was good to have you on. Uh, well, it was good to for you to accompany me through my mindless rambling on about nerdly matters. So thanks for that, and see you next week. Bye.